Last month saw Italian general elections, with a party called Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, coming first. Their leader, Giorgia Maloney, entered politics age 15 and joined the MSI as a post-fascist party, and she's favorably quoted Mussolini. Many see Fratelli d'Italia as the latest far-right party in Europe with origins in post-fascism. To discuss all of that and what a premiership with Giorgia Maloney at the top might look like, I spoke to Dr. David Broda, an expert in Italian politics and the country's far right. So explain what just happened. There's this party called uh, Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy. They're led by somebody called Giorgia Maloney, and they've just come first in the Italian elections. But things are a little bit more complicated than that. If there's a government after all this, I mean, there will be a government, not if there's a government, when there's a government, uh, what will it look like? What will its complexion be? During the campaign, Giorgia Milani made a big deal of the fact that Italians should be able to choose their government directly. They should know who the coalitions are. They should know who they're voting for. Uh, the last uh, 11 years, uh, there have been quite a few uh, governments which were technocratic cabinets or which you know made up of figures from outside electoral politics or ones which were uh, made kind of strange alliances of so forces from both centre-left and centre-right. Uh, and the outgoing government, Mario Draghi's government, was a national unity government with everything from centre-left to far-right uh, and really everything except uh, Fratelli d'Italia. So part of her message to the right-wing electorate has been, you know, vote for us and you know that you'll have a right-wing government. Uh, she indeed says that she is monogamous in uh, matters of alliances, so would only go in with right-wing parties. Uh, so really, I think the government we're about to see will be a quite classic formula we've seen with other right-wing governments in the 90s and 2000s uh, in the Berlusconi era, which is Berlusconi's own party, Forza Italia, uh, the Lega, led by Matteo Salvini, and then the post-fascist party, which is now called Fratelli d'Italia. Uh, the difference from the previous times is that this time uh, Fratelli d'Italia is easily the biggest party within the right-wing coalition. Uh, it got far more votes than both of its allies uh, combined. The right-wing coalition, which Italian media insist on calling the centre-right, uh, got 44% of the vote, and of that, 26 was for Fratelli d'Italia. So clearly, Milani has a certain kind of uh, mandate to uh, lead the uh, right-wing coalition. And where have they come from? Because you had the last set of elections in 2018, and, and this particular far-right party, ultra-nationalist party, was on middling to low single figures. So how, how come they've managed to massively increase their base of support amongst right-wing radical right-wing voters in Italy over the last four years? Partly it's because the right-wing electorate in general has been very volatile for the last three decades. When Giorgia Milani uh, became politically active in 1992, you could say, well, you know, the last 45 years before that, the Christian Democrats had been the dominant party the whole time. They'd always been in government. Uh, and then they collapsed in the early 1990s, uh, partly due to the end end of the Cold War, partly due to a corruption scandal called Bribesville. And you know, that's the moment, 1994, Berlusconi came into politics. And since then, the right-wing electorate has moved between the three basic forces, I said, his own party, the Lega and uh, Fratelli d'Italia. Although it's true that Fratelli d'Italia in this election uh, made a huge leap because, as you said, they only got 4% in 2018. 
Uh, but this is still a party you know that's had ministers before in some of the elections in the 90s and 2000s it got you know 12-15%. So you know it's not a totally minoritarian thing and also Berlusconi's uh, Berlusconi's role was to take a once small and marginal political culture the heirs to fascism and bring them into government. Uh, even Meloni has been a minister before. Uh, she was a youth minister in Berlusconi's uh, last government. It's not a sudden thing that's come out of nowhere. You know, this party has been normalized for a long time, including a lot of its talking points, including things like great replacement theory, uh, including very racist ideas, including the historical revisionism, which even like Berlusconi himself and so on pushed. Uh, I think, you know, the last few years, uh, Matteo Salvini had been very much the rising star on the uh, Italian right, had galvanized a kind of nationalist uh, base around himself. Uh, and then he's made a sort of series of missteps in recent years, uh, firstly breaking his government with Five Star, uh, then the fact that he was in the national unity uh, government with Draghi. And really, Melanie's had the, a great opportunity because when there was a national unity government, to which she was the only major opposition. Uh, you know, she could criticize the government from the outside, say that the other right wing parties were governing together with the left, uh, also present herself as someone who maybe wouldn't uh, necessarily like break with all of Mario Draghi's economic agenda. So kind of both rally her own base by attacking the left and denouncing, you know, the fact that they were always in power despite winning, never winning elections. Uh, but at the same time, start this work of her making closer relations with um, international conservative forces, trying to stress that she wouldn't be a kind of destabilizing force. So it's kind of like a mix of um, very reactionary and kind of culture war identity politics on the domestic uh, political field, yet at the same time trying to like show that uh, she would you know, maintain Italy's international position, uh, support for NATO, the EU, uh, weapons for Ukraine, uh, not even destabilize Draghi's economic agenda too much. There's no kind of like anti-fascist barriers for right-wing voters. Polling we have so far since the election on Sunday shows that more, more than half of Milani's voters had voted for the Lega in 2018. The overall number of right-wing voters is actually very stable at around 12 million. Really what we're seeing is that she's really appealed to northern business and the kind of voters and uh, say local sort of power holders who might have been expected to be aligned with the Lega have have really rallied behind her. So I think that that actually explains her her success a lot more. That is so fascinating, David, because for particularly um, sort of Anglo American commentators, it's easy to look at Labour and the Red Wall or the Rust Belt with Trump in 2016 and and just presume like yeah, blue collar Italian workers have had enough of the woke liberal left and they're sort of opting for more social conservative politics, but but that doesn't seem to be the case. And what we get in Italy instead is actually just a, a reconfiguration of an existing right block. You mentioned Salvini already. It's his star on the way. You know, four years ago, people were saying, could this be the first sort of far-right prime minister of Italy uh, since, yeah, since 45, really? Um, what, what's your take on that? Is he, is he finished or, or is there a second act left in, in, in his political career? Ooh, I think um, I, I'd, I'd opt more for saying that this is the end. Uh, of course, you can <laughs> never say never. And, you know, a lot of uh, other figures, notably, of course, Berlusconi, uh, were, were, were written off. Although I'd say the difference is that, that Berlusconi fundamentally is the uh, owner of his party and is himself directly at the center of the kind of power networks around which it's built. 
whereas Salvini's uh, success was more based on a, a political project, which was to take the Lega, which used to only organize in northern Italy, and to make it a, a national and indeed nationalist uh, party. So it started running candidates in the south for the first time and so on, uh, lent much more into this like anti-immigrant thing, being it's like galvanizing, so raison d'etre. It's even quite common in Italian media now, uh, when, and I mean centrist or center-left media, to portray um, Salvini as the more disruptive and uh, populist, uh, as they would put it, force even than Milani. And also, for example, Salvini went much deeper on kind of seeking ties with Russia. Uh, in 2017, uh, he made a formal pact between the Liga and uh, United Russia, the main pro-Putin party. So I think that kind of stuff has, has really uh, damaged him, even on the right uh, and also, I mean, I think it could also be said that the the the, the um, there's a kind of contradiction because the Lega has been up and down a lot of times before. Like it's had times before where it rose up to you know more than ten percent and fell down to three, four, whatever. But it's always maintained these kind of regional power bases, which are the real force of the party. If you think like the biggest uh, region by population and also richest region in Italy um, by GDP, um, Lombardy is controlled by the Lega and they're very strong there. Veneto, a heartland region of, of the Lega, always has been. And you know, they came third place there on Sunday. But then you think if there was a regional election there tomorrow, they'd probably win 70%. So I think like for the regional power holders, it is you know, the the project of making a nationalist party doesn't really make sense for them. And they're probably quite tired of Salvini's posturing. Uh, Salvini is making a big deal about wanting to be interior minister again because in 2018, 2019, when he did have that role, that really helped him sort of um, impose his tone and sort of narration on everything the government was doing. And that was the period of his success. But I think it doesn't make sense from Milani and Fratelli d'Italia's point of view to go along with that. Uh, and then, you know, the problem they have as well is like, um, you know, Milani held a, a, a conference in, in Milan at the end of April uh, which was called uh, Freeing Up Energy. And it was like a conference aimed at the business world. So you've got these people from Confindustria, which is like the Italian equivalent of the uh, CBI. You've got uh, Guido Crosetto, who's like one of the leaders of Fratelli d'Italia and who's head of part of Confindustria, the Employers Association, uh, for the uh, for the world of like um, aerospace, defense, um, uh, that kind of thing, security contractors. So, you know, they are doing seriously well Fratelli d'Italia at getting like Italian business, including in the like the Lega's own like northern heartlands. You know, they're having real success pulling those kind of interests uh, behind them. Uh, so I think for the Lega, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't uh, have uh, good uh, contacts internally to know what they're, they're thinking. But um, yeah, I think like Salvini's uh, shtick is probably quite... Um, um, yeah, sort of uh, exhausted, and that um, probably for the like regional governors of the Lega and some of their own like local leaders, it makes more sense to 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 probably to retreat into their their own strengths and you know more stuff like kind of autonomy for their regions and so on. Why is this sort of northern Italian business elite not even ambivalent about Fratelli d'Italia, but relatively sort of open to them? What what, what explains that more than say Forza Italia, more than say like you say Salvini? More than centrist parties, we'll talk about them in a moment. Why, why do they increasingly seem, you know, uh, they, 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 trusts is perhaps a bit of a stretch, but they're not 
they're not frightened by a Maloney government in the way that you, you wouldn't mm-hmm. think, given her, her rhetoric. One thing is that uh, we're kind of accustomed to this idea, which is that um, the post-fascist party and it's like political tradition has always included like a lot of different elements of kind of like economic thinking some of which were like much more kind of statist the post-fascist right is still always called there's this word like an italian expression is like the social right and it's social because it's in the tradition of the movimento sociale italiano the post-war neo-fascist party but also a certain kind of like because some of the trends in the party particularly had like a, a very, um, very much the idea of like the strong state that's like interventionist and which guides capitalism, somehow drawn from the fascist tradition, but actually also very influenced by things like Gaulism, uh, who Meloni actually also quite, quotes quite a lot, the, uh, the example of, of de Gaulle. Um, in the 90s and 2000s, the party was very much um, subordinate to Berlusconi, integrated some more kind of like um, um, free marketeer uh, reference points and ideas, sort of proclaiming market values in a way which has been strange for the MSO in the post-war decades, uh, but also like certain like kind of um, idea of like strategic intervention of the state to protect citizens from the impact of globalization. I'd say that Milani is even more straightforwardly free marketeer. Mm. Uh, and you know, there's n- really nothing in her program in terms of welfare. Meloni uh, boasts that hers is the only party that has consistently voted to get rid of the job seeker benefits introduced by the Five Star Movement in 2019. It's called Citizens' Income, and it's like it's a bit like JSA in Britain, but in Italy, it's presented as this new and weird thing that the crazy statist uh, Five Star Movement introduced, like paying people to sit on the sofa rather than go to work. So on that, on that kind of thing, like you see Maloney actually adopts a quite Thatcherite uh, uh, rhetoric and, you know, certainly like Confindustria, as I say, like the Italian equivalent of the CBI, you know, they definitely want to get rid of that, uh, you know, because, because it, it's a big disincentive for people to take up uh, low paid jobs. You know, some of the people who they've won to the party recently who are like um, basically people who were burned out of the previous Berlusconi government, including Berlusconi's previous finance minister, Giulio Tremonti, who was basically removed when the uh, European Central Bank basically you know, brought down Berlusconi's last government in 2011. So you know, someone like him would articulate a kind of critique of globalization and its failure and insist on the need to rebuild Italian industry, Italian manufacturing. But the kind of ideas with which he would do that would be things like um, strip back environmental legislation to um, allow Italy to compete better with China, however like crazy such a perspective might be in terms of competing with China on cost. You know, that's what they say. They say like, you know, we conservatives, we care about the environment most because we love our beautiful country. And yet we're importing electric cars from China rather than rebuilding our own car uh, manufacturing industry. So we need like less environmental regulation and uh, tax breaks for companies who invest in restructuring, tax breaks for companies who hire staff even saying the tax rate should be proportional to the amount of hiring you're doing. So those kind of policies are very attractive to the kind of firm structure you have in Italy. They often kind of say small and medium firms. This is also the, the reason why the, the idea of euro exit is always a bit exaggerated, right? Northeastern Italy particularly, you're thinking like firms who maybe are like in the supply chain of big German uh, in industrial uh, firms. Very stereotypically, let's imagine the firm that makes leather steering wheels for Volkswagen and they're like nice and Italian and leather or whatever, you know? So they're, like, they're suffering 
from the overvaluation of the effective valuation of the Italian currency because they're in the euro, and yet you know they don't actually want to split from the euro. They don't want to face the moment of confrontation that involves. What they really want is for the like tax pressure to be eased on them, for them to be able to receive you know like help uh, so that they can like invest in like you know digitalizing or whatever. So what you actually have is quite a lot of those kind of interests are both like happy with Draghi and looked up to him and were willing, you know, were keen for aspects of like the, the recovery plan and so on. But they're equally happy to switch their support to Milani because she is publicly defending policies which very much uh, suit them. Most of the sort of post-war Italian economic growth model, a lot of it was exports and a, a major way to improve exports was to devalue the currency to make them more competitive that happened sort of repeatedly. I mean, you you know this far better than I do, but in the 80s and the 90s, that was paradigmatically seen as like a tool that the government could use. That's obviously gone now because they have the euro. So the kind of industrial interest that historically would have appealed to devaluation of the currency, are they now saying quite new things? So things they might not have said in the 80s and 90s, they might have had a disposition to a relatively larger state, a Gaullist state perhaps, But because those levers can't be pulled anymore, they're saying, well, you know what, actually, we want lower taxes, we want free enterprise zones, we want to weaken labour even more than we already have it. But there's a kind of contradiction because on the one hand, um, the revival of like Italian export industry would require it to be able to compete more on grounds of depressing labour costs, which is what they've already been doing for 30 years. But then at the same time, like probably the assets that like Italian firms probably still have is brand and luxury and, and so on. The the idea was kind of in the early nineties and taken up even by the MSI, but by the by the right wing parties in general. The state needs to get out of the way and this will like free the the terrain for like the development of private industries which are gonna fill the gap in between the interventionist state and then the like mass of small and medium firms that is typical of Italy. And you know that hasn't happened, and then if you think of the social base of the the Lega in that period, it's very much you know small and medium businesses, but maybe where even the bosses would be like uh, kind of like involved in kind of like self exploitation and like super under pressure. Um, so yeah, I think like uh, there, you know, I think uh, I mean of course there's other factors also driving the 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 uh, rise of Fratelli d'Italia. So I think you know it, it, they would always accommodate themselves to like. Uh, the uh, the rising force of the day, uh, but then I think like you know the the it's the Fratelli d'Italia's program is attractive basically because it it's a it's a form of of handout to to business which is just like yeah like tax cuts so you know it will help see them through the next um, through the through the coming crisis and so on. Let's talk about the um, the left quickly because. The real change in this election hasn't been with the Partito Democratico, the centre-left party, but more, I mean, you wouldn't really call it left, but you had a, a major fall in the vote of the, of the five-star movement. So, again, this was kind of like a political formation, which over the last 10 years, the media's talked about, new kind of politics, new kind of party, headed by a comedian, Bebe Grillo, and yet they've just been absolutely hammered. Can you talk about them for a moment? So the five-star movement, you know, in its origin, um, drew heavily on the idea of representing an alternative to the all established parties across the political terrain the the big early moment of its growth um was when it was faced with mario monti's technocratic uh, cabinet from 2011 to 13 which was supported by both the democrats the kind of liberal europeanist central left uh, and berlusconi so in a way 
they were kind of negative of that because as against the government, which was from center left to center right, they claimed to represent like everything uh, against that. Um, and then, you know, they said they'd never make coalitions. They weren't like other parties. And then the last four years, when they were the biggest party, they made like every possible coalition. You know, they were first with the Lager, then with the Democrats, then with both the Lager and the Democrats and Berlusconi, despite being like an anti-corruption party to begin with. So, yeah, they suffered a lot of splits. Their records when local government is really terrible. They were expected to disappear. Like the Democrats uh, didn't make a coalition with fight. Like the electoral law in Italy um, strongly favors coalitions. Um, the uh, you know the right wing parties got like sixty percent of the seats on forty four percent of the vote, but Democrats had no interest in making a coalition with Five Star. I think because basically they thought they'd be able to crush them, and they also wanted to ally with kind of some of the centrist. Uh, so-called and very neoliberal hawkish people like you know, Matteo Renzi, uh, who was prime minister in the mid-2010s, uh, or his finance minister, Carlo Calenda, uh, who hate each other, but they stood together anyway. So the Democrats basically were thinking, you know, five stars out the picture, we can use this election to crush them. And also, you know, the Democrats made a big deal, particularly at the start of the campaign, that you know, they're the continuation of the draggy agenda. So, you know, they're the, the, the typical role of the Democrats for the last, you know, 15 years has always been like the party of Italy's institutions of stability, the, the external relation with the EU and so on, uh, was, you know, five star. It's very different political culture and they, you know, always kind of uh, hated each other. Five star is a much more kind of popular and working class, uh, social base. Two months ago, when they, when they split with Draghi's coalition, the Democrats and so on condemned them for being irresponsible and so on. And Five Star were on like you know, 9% of the vote. And in the end, they got 15% of the vote. So yes, they lost uh, more than half their votes. And of the ones who didn't vote again, a large majority abstained. And that's also a reason why in this election, the, the turnout 64% was 9% down on 2018, easily the lowest in the history of the Italian Republic. Of course, from a British perspective, maybe... 64% turnout doesn't sound that terrible. But then if you think like in the 70s, 80s, you know, there were 90% plus was the usual. Um, so Five Star actually did recover a bit, particularly by emphasizing their their role in um, introducing job seekers allowance, what is called citizen's income, uh, and in uh, campaigning for a minimum wage. And a lot of kind of centrist neoliberal pundits like very sharply condemned this focus uh, in particular, because it was seen as like very focused on getting votes in the South. So there's this idea of like the voto di scambio, which is basically you're promising the voters money if they vote for you. So it's like uh, portrayed as like inherently corrupt. The fact that they're promising benefits to this part of the electorate. And of course, there's a strong racially inflected contempt for like, you know, the Southern lazy working class and so on. It's like this idea of like the unearned income. So, so I think actually the, the the hostility that they encountered during the campaign probably helped firm up part of their base in a way that made made sure that Five Star didn't disappear from the uh, political scene. So, despite it's like very many contradictions and changes of position over the year of the years, I think Giuseppe Conte, its leader, actually ran a quite interesting campaign. And let's also say that you know his predecessor's leader, Luigi Di Maio who is the outgoing, you know, he's now the outgoing foreign minister. You know, he led 
five star in the previous general election. He quit in uh, June to form like a small party, which was like X five star, but pro draggy allied to the Democrats. And he got like 0.6% and didn't get back into parliament. So I think um, five star has you know, made a, a slightly odd in, impact on the campaign also because uh, unlike the Democrats, actually, it didn't focus much of its campaign on opposing Milani or, or right. um, you know, warning of the threat, but rather just directly talking about its own uh, issues uh, in a way that was, uh, which made it quite separate from the overall uh, campaign. And what about the more radical left? Obviously, Italy has, uh, you know, a storied history of of parties on the radical left. You had the Communist Party, the Socialist Party. You obviously had the uh, uh, Comunista Rifondazione since the 1990s even. Um, you've had sort of moments of, of even what seems like a glimpse of a charismatic leader coming through on the left since even the end of the Cold War. Where are they in all of this? Because you, you, you're talking about the centre, the centre-right, the far-right and the centre-left, but the left seems strangely absent. So there's some sort of leftish, kind of more like, I guess, probably more like the kind of people who'd be in the Green Party in Britain uh, have a party, uh, you know, there's uh, Sinistra Italiana, and that made an alliance with uh, with Greens, and they elected some kind of like labor activists and, and uh, sort of civil rights activists and so on, uh, a notable one. And they were in the coalition of the Democrats, actually. Uh, so they ran, uh, for example, Abu Bakr Sumoro, who's like a, he, he used to be a kind of like a farm workers organizer. He's like a guy born in Ivory Coast. So actually like quite unusual in Italian politics, actually to have any uh, black people at all. Uh, and like, you know, like a very uh, articulate and strong um, defender of, of like the, of like social demands and anti-racist and, and actually, you know, someone with a Marxist culture, let's say. Um, so you know, he got into uh, parliament, I think it was in the Senate. The kind of radical left outside of the sort of centre left coalition. I mean, uh, the main force was Unione Popolare, People's Union, which like explicitly drew its name from Jean Luc Mélenchon's uh, campaign in France. You know, Mélenchon himself actually visited uh, Rome and gave like some meetings in the street. Um, and its leader Luigi Di Magistris was uh, mayor of uh, Naples throughout the twenty tens. Um, so, you know, I think they're like, you know, the program was like comparable to other European radical left parties, like, you know, France and Samus, Podemos, whatever, you know, they obviously had an uphill battle because it was only just formed a few weeks before the election was called. So they were always going to struggle to make an impact. And then they, you know, they didn't, uh, come close to getting the 3% they needed to get into parliament. But then that's the problem, right? Which is like the, the fact that it's always kind of like, always having to catch up, always trying to make a mark, always having to like tell people who you are. So like unlike the other radical left experiences we've had in other European countries recently, like where, you know, we could say like, well, the new left combined with part of the old structure of the labor movement, defectors from more center left, you know, neoliberalized social democratic parties or something. In Italy it's like decades since the old structures are collapsed in a more fundamental way. And I think it would be very difficult to like um, mobilize, for example, like large numbers of young people on the idea of the labor movement is like the thing that stands up for you. Because it's hard to point, I think, to recent successful examples where like movements of like class solidarity have won important victories, but also just like the kind of political personnel 
who might lead such a thing are also kind of lacking. It should also be said, I think, of Italy compared to, say, France or Britain. I think the general belief in the capacity of, like, the state to um, even to revive, uh, you know, to, to revive GDP, never mind make big interventions that will, in terms of, like, redistributing wealth or creating jobs or carrying through, like, a serious green agenda or anything. I think the belief in the capacity of the state to do that is kind of gone. So like what we see among young people, working class people, Southerners, is just very high uh, abstention. In a way, the answer to your question is that the five-star movement actually kind of is the Italian version of of, of those things, but also reflects the kind of, um, the polit- not in the sense that it is a left-wing or radical left party, but in the sense that it kind of responds to the same kind of a disappointment and grievance and so on, but it just does so without a left-wing culture and actually without like a sort of hopeful and alternative uh, program. But yeah, certainly in this election, the fact that Five Star was the party of citizens, you know, citizens income so-called, the fact that Five Star was the party that defended the unemployed and stood up for um, a higher minimum, well, a minimum wage which doesn't exist, and in fact, also that Five Star is markedly less anti-immigrant now than it was uh, four years ago, meant that I think Five Star actually did draw a certain kind of um, left-wing uh, electorate. So it made it hard; would have made it difficult for anything to arise uh, independently of it. Of course, it should also be said um, that Unione Popolare, uh, the, the the list I mentioned, they did actually seek to form some sort of alternative coalition with Five Star, as did some other like small left-wing forces. And Five Star basically weren't interested in doing that. So I think it's a bit weird because Five Star has kind of become a problem for the left now in a way which maybe like a few, even a couple of years ago, you'd have thought it would probably just disappear entirely. So what you're saying is that a sort of big obstacle for the Italian left is that in the wider public consciousness, there isn't a belief that the state can solve problems, which I think in Britain, however down people feel, I think people recognise that there is a consensus that the state can solve problems. Like with COVID, people expected the state to do stuff. When there's a major problem, people expect the government to get it sorted. And if it doesn't, there's actually a major political overhead. And also there's the delivery recently of of quite significant infrastructure. I know Italy's had the same sort of stuff, but people can look at Crossrail or they can look at HS2 and they can say, well, the, go- you know, the government does, does do stuff. Um, and HS still remains the, the, the country's biggest employer and so on. You were saying the absence of that is something of an obstacle for the Italian left. At the same time, what's interesting is that obviously the Italian right bang on about the Italian nation. And Fratelli d'Italia constantly talk about, I mean, Fratelli d'Italia, the, the literal name of the political party comes from the first line of the Italian national anthem. So there's constant appeals to this community of Italians. Is that not something that the left could channel i'm not suggesting that they do so in a way similar to um to fratelli d'italia but the appeals to a more progressive sort of civic liberal nationalism or is that just again an impossibility well i I mean i think like the the italian left historically uh let's say the post-war italian left certainly did uh, appeal to a kind of uh you know like a, a civic patriotism rooted in the resistance precisely because of course the fascists did betray Italy and allowed it to be trampled upon by Nazi Germany. And then the uh, communists were the main force in a resistance, which uh, actually talked about its like patriotism and so on all the time. Even when like Refondazione Comunista were in the 1990s, like a party which would get like eight, nine percent of the vote, 
and that was uh, at times in the centre-left uh, alliance nationally and even in, in a very junior uh, government role, it's that he didn't really kind of like project a kind of a broad vision of like what the Italian government should do and what uh, Italy should be like. It was too much like a party of like protest and the against the things uh, he didn't like and which kind of struggled, I think, to to articulate like a kind of big like kind of economic vision of, 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 you know, growth in the Italian economy or indeed even like, you know, green transition or something. That kind of um, ambition and so on is is not so strong. However, what I push back slightly against what you said on Fratelli d'Italia, because actually I think there's a big contradiction in what they say, which is quite interesting, which is that Fratelli d'Italia is really a party which accepts that Italy is a junior partner in the Western alliance, um, that it doesn't really have a kind of autonomy in its foreign policy. Uh, so I think part of the reason actually why um you know, there was generally, I think, less alarm at Milani winning than there might have been if, say, uh, Le Pen had won in France, is, is kind of to do with the fact that it's kind of hard to imagine Italy sort of mounting a kind of confrontation with the European Union or following like a seriously independent foreign policy. So I think in a certain light, precisely the strategy of, of Milani is to advertise the fact that she doesn't want to change Italy's like international position but while also using nationalism as a stick to, with which to beat various domestic opponents, uh, including, of course, the left, migrants, LGBT lobbies, and you know the, those uh, elements in her discourse are often uh, called like unpatriotic. Uh, she often kind of combines the idea of like the globalists, the speculators, George Soros, uh, the social media giants, and then. The, the LGBT lobbies and the migrants and so on. You can separate out the kind of identity politics as it applies to domestic politics and then in terms of like Italy's place in international institutions. Of course, whether that balance can hold itself seems quite dubious given that, you know, we're facing like a very severe um, uh, economic crisis. And I actually think one of the ironies of the current situation is that I think um, probably the instincts of Fratelli Italia as a party are more uh, free marketeer than it will actually be able to pursue in uh, government because its political culture kind of partly develops as a kind of like show of overcoming its neo-fascist roots yet the political moment in which it's come to power is one in which capitalism in general is becoming more like national and like state interventionist uh, so I think that would be a big contradiction in, in whatever they do. I suppose a counter-argument to that would be that what she's saying in regards to Italy's position regarding NATO, regarding Russia, you know, Maloney sent out a tweet supporting Zelensky. She's opposed uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine very, very, very overtly. Mm -hmm. um, they've not been critical of NATO. They're not talking about leaving the Eurozone. Um, could that not just be rhetoric, though? Could, can, I mean, especially on the, on the stuff relating to the EU. So, for instance, you see, you know, senior people in, in, in the European Union say that, well, we're keeping an eye on Italy. And they're now sort of with a potential Maloney premiership talking about it like another Poland or Hungary, mm -hmm. which is to say a, a, a sort of a regime that deviates somewhat from the core essentials of Eurozone or membership or, you know, being a core state of the European Union, i.e. not running big deficits. Um, having a 
a closer relationship to certain countries which are not necessarily close to NATO. I mean, surely they wouldn't say those kinds of things unless they thought Maloney was capable of it. I guess I think that it could be something a bit like the uh, Orban situation uh, in terms of, you know, Orban does things domestically in terms of the um, uh, civil rights, migrants' rights, rule of law, magistrates, and so on, which draw him the criticism of uh, the European Union and its leaders. But, I mean, I think fundamentally, like, I mean, does... You know, does the German auto industry care that Orban is doing these things? I mean, and does, and in turn, does he actually destabilize Hungary's position in the EU? I mean, I, it would seem to me the answer is no. And the difference, I mean, part of the thing is like, you know, Milani in her, um, uh, in the 2017, so they have this ideological treatise called the Trieste Thesis, uh, and it's from the, the conference held in uh, 2017. And in it, it indicates like, Oh, like the Europe we want is the one indicated by Giorgio Amirante, the fact that the, one of the founders of the MSI and his longtime leader, and Charles de Gaulle, the Europe of strong nations. The countries which embody this path are Poland and Hungary. Okay, so if you look at Poland and Hungary, two things strike me about those countries, one of which is that neither of them is a member of the Eurozone, uh, and the other is, is that they're like very small players in the European Union. The chance of like seeking some sort of like uh, exit or confrontation. I think particularly over the budget deficits, that seems to me unlikely in terms of the like culture and the kind of people who Fratelli d'Italia represent. In fact, um, not only has Italy had primary budget surpluses for 30 years, but um, balanced budgets are very much part of like something Milani always insists upon. Actually, during the campaign, Salvini suggested that maybe they would have to consider uh, breaking with the limits. And she just like directly said no. Um, so I think like it's more likely that they'll try and be as conformist as possible on that front. I mean, they're very much signaling as well this that they want like Mario Draghi to help them write the next phase of the recovery plan. There's this guy called Guido Crosetto, who I mentioned earlier, along the like Defense Employers Association guy. You know, and they're 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 talking a lot about the fact you know we're not going to be in government. You know, the government hasn't formed yet. And they're saying maybe in six weeks it will happen. So you know they're saying like we you know we want the outgoing government to do a lot of the work for us, and we'll like write it. The Italian expression is a quattro mani, like we'll write it with four hands. We'll write it together. Uh, so I think like on that kind of thing, they uh, they th- I think they wouldn't seek a confrontation on that kind of ground. I think the more mediocre the government's performance then the more likely it will be to seek confrontations with Europe over things like um, migrants' rights. You know, there's this, Milani has consistently raised the idea of a naval blockade to stop, you know, rescue boats from reaching Italy. I think it's much more likely that she would seek that kind of, like, big theatre of confrontation, which would, like, harden her own base, rather than do things that seriously imperil Italy's um, international position. I mean, another thing I'll, I'll just say finally on the, on the, on the, 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 the examples of, of Poland and Hungary is that last December, Mateusz Morawiecki, who's the Prime Minister of Poland, organized a conference in Warsaw that was intended to unite the two far right groups in the European Parliament. So if we think, so basically Milani has a group which is like Sweden Democrats, Fratelli d'Italia, Vox. Uh, the party that the Tories used to be in, but which is broadly like a party of uh, law and justice in Poland as well. So th- that's broadly like a party of parties which are um, anti-immigrant, 
Eurosceptic against further federalism, many of which have post-fascist roots, uh, but which um, are also actually largely defined by being quite hostile to Russia. Uh, the other group, uh, ID, includes parties like Le Pen's Rassemblement National, Salvini's Lega, and so on. So, you know, he, Morawiecki, the Polish Prime Minister, wanted to bring these two groups together. Of course, they have a lot in common, but the Russia thing was a huge split in Poland and is in the European Union. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of alliance, I think, uniting those different forces would, would today be uh, very difficult to, to realize. And the fact that Poland is seen as obviously a, a bulwark, uh, for Ukraine and against Russia has, has led to Poland, uh, and its government becoming much more like in favor in the like power centers of the EU and in the European People's Party, which is the biggest uh, force in the European Parliament. So I think like that has itself made Meloni's um, European group seem less kind of like um, extreme and that in reality, uh, you know, like, uh, I'll just say one more thing, the European People's Party leader, the main Christian democratic group, uh, its leader Manfred Weber came to Italy during the campaign and it was even um, suggested that that um, the intention of the European People's Party would be to support a Milani government through its local ally um, Berlusconi, and maybe even the interior minister in the next government will be Antonio Tajani, who's one of the leaders of the European People's Party, who's in Forza Italia. But that the real the real thing they don't want is an alliance with Salvini, and that they could even consider like trying to force Salvini out of the coalition. So it would be like Meloni, Berlusconi, plus like some centrist liberals. Right. Um, so I think like there's lots of ways in which they're trying to uh, handle and integrate uh, her and don't want a, a, a confrontation. It's also fascinating because I think, like you say, the sort of default response from many has been, she obviously comes from a neo-fascist organization. The rhetoric is very far right. But to me, Georgia Maloney just suggests what happens now to the mainstream European centre-right um, and, and where its kind of energies go, particularly um, particularly in, in, in Southern Europe. I mean, you see something similar potentially with Vox in Spain. They have elections next year. Mm-hmm. There may be a coalition there between, between the Partido Popular, the centre-right party and Vox, very similar arrangement. And what it suggests is, yes, an adoption of free markets, no real change on foreign policy, still very committed to the NATO, you know, Western-centric foreign policy and whatnot. Um, unlike you know Le Pen or or, or or Renzi previously, and then a kind of optical ultranationalism fascism. I mean, fascism is a very strong word, but the the optics are what matter. Like you say, this the sort of theatre of you know the Italian navy in the Mediterranean stopping migrants coming, or a particularly punitive immigration system um, taking away a particular uh, payment to low income Italians. But actually, the real fundamentals of the of the country's political economy and its diplomatic relations, unlike the 1930s with Italy, with Germany, actually broadly stay the same. And and mm-hmm. uh, there's real inertia there. And I find that a really fascinating kind of conclusion to arrive at. Do you think with Maloney, she's just a very, very formidable politician, and she sort of recognises she has to do that in the opening period to provide space, to manufacture consent for her legitimacy as a politician or do you think that's just kind of her end game really actually when it comes down to it the likes of Maloney Fratelli d'Italia can't really hope for any more than that what she's planning to do 
in lots of ways is just the same thing we'd expect of lots of right-wing parties, which also aren't of neo-fascist background. I think it's important to insist that Fratelli d'Italia is a party rooted in neo-fascism. Uh, it has changed because the forms of politics and people's expectations of what states uh, will do have changed. You know, we live in an era in which we no longer have mass parties, where grand projects of social change have diminished a lot, where social violence is a lot less, where a lot of economic policy decisions and so on are outsourced, uh, and and where the Western alliance is, you know, a permanent and a fact that's existed for more than two generations. Um, so it's both true that she's mainstream and also that the party is inspired by neo-fascism. And, you know, obviously in a way it's true, you know, this this could be the the instance where um, an Italian party does something that has often been hypothesized before and never really succeeded, which is the attempt to create a Italian version of the US Republican Party. Of course, part of the reason why that's possible is due to the direct relations she has with the US Republican Party, which uh, is itself ever more uh, open to conspiracy theorists, uh, fascist groups, uh, and which like in some way sort of reflects a kind of like a decline of 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 the west and its like vision of of growth and prosperity and and so on the big contradiction we have now is that um meloni through her the way in which she's basically pitched herself during this campaign and even the way in which like say various foreign and institutional actors have responded to her has has generally been to make her more autonomous from her party and its image. Their leaders are almost entirely people drawn from the MSI tradition, some of whom are very blatantly neo-fascist, you know, like, you know, the head, the leader in the European Parliament, like, was filmed doing a fascist salute, like, one year ago. Now they have all these new MPs, and let's say, like, the, I mean, I think, like, the, the kind of people they're bringing into Parliament with them are just, like, uh, you know, in Italian expression, it's like the leadership group, uh, it's like very weak and full of people who are like very likely to do and say like kind of like slightly crazy uh, stuff. So I think the the problem is that sh- what she's currently trying to do is to put together a, a, co- a cabinet which will include like lots of technocrats, lots of people who used to be Christian Democrats and this kind of stuff. But then actually the problem is because of the way the Italian party system works and because voters are basically, certainly on the right wing, are very fickle in their party choices. So the problem she's still going to have is someone like Salvini or either Salvini himself or someone like him would be quite easy to undermine that kind of politics from within by like staging like big... Uh, you know, confrontations, quitting the government, that kind of stuff. You know, the kind of whole thing of like, we're a responsible party that sticks with Italy's allies and so on. That's all very good for like laundering Milani's image. But at the same time, you know, most of the voters of Fratelli d'Italia want Italy to abandon its sanctions against Russia. So with the like social pressures created by the continuation of the war you know whether of course we could question like the risk whether the war is the only reason for the for the crisis uh or whether like you know cutting the sanctions is a a good response to that but but my my point is that the, the mere fact that she wants to mainstream herself and drop apparent ideological ballast isn't necessarily going to save her faced with the crisis she's going to have to confront 
David, that's been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us from Italy. I'm sure we'll be in touch again. This is a story which will continue to develop. Yeah, for sure, but thanks for having me on. Pleasure. Analyzing political events overseas is the bread and butter of news organizations, whether that's newspapers, radio, or TV stations. But what Navarra Media does differently is we don't just seek to report and analyze these events, but we also seek to look at the successes, failures, challenges, and opportunities, and feed that back in, understanding how to better build a successful socialist politics in the 21st century. If you think that's a worthwhile objective, I certainly do, not many others are doing it right now, then why not become a supporter? Go to navaramedia.com forward slash support, make a one-off payment, or become a monthly supporter, just paying one hour's pay a month. That's what we generally suggest.